Hey everyone, welcome to Pieces of You, a show about life through the lens of four fierce and resilient women who lost their moms too damn soon. Each episode will feature stories to inspire hope, healing, and connection. Because if we work together, we can make the broken better. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pieces of You. This is Erin, and we're going to be covering the topic of anger. We're going to have a look into the nature of anger during the grieving process and possibly discuss the various ways that it shows up for grieving people and the ways in which it is received. This episode contains a content warning related to the topic of mother loss. Please check the show notes for a more detailed description. How is everyone doing today? Good. Worried. (laughs) I'm nervous about talking about anger. I was so angry for a long time. So let's go. (laughs) Yeah, I've got a an interesting relationship with anger, which I'm also nervous to revisit and uncover. And I consider myself not an angry person typically. But then as I started thinking about this topic, I was like, but wait, maybe there is some things in there that I just don't consider the word angry, but are still feelings that go that direction. So I'm intrigued and I'm nervous. Oh, okay. I'm excited. I'm I'm actually, I, I'm loving all those responses. So I think this is going to be a good one. Um, okay. So the first thing that I would like to start off with is a quote actually from a psychotherapist and writer and grief advocate named Megan Divine. She has a book that is really awesome and it's called It's Okay to Not Be Okay. And this is a quote from her book. She had put out a tweet with this graphic from her book. So the quote from her book that I'd like to start this day off with is, the reality of anger never gets any airtime in our culture. Anger is a response to a sense of injustice. Of course you're angry. Whatever has happened to you is unjust. Anger, allowed expression, is simply energy. Shown respect and given room, anger tells a story of love and connection and longing for what is lost. Contrary to pop psychology and the medical model, anger is healthy, normal, and necessary. Divine continues to write in her tweets, your anger surrounding loss is welcome. It's healthy. It's not something to rush through so you can be more evolved or acceptable to the people around you. So what are our first reactions to this quote from Megan Divine's book? That line, love, connection, and longing for what is lost as a way to describe anger just completely shifts my whole view of it. Anger is something I've been very scared of and not able to really understand. And this makes so much sense. What spoke to me about it a lot was when she says, anger allowed expression is simply energy. And it puts a really neutral lens on it. It doesn't pathologize anger. It doesn't make it seem good or bad because in my opinion, in my experience, there is no good or bad way to do this, to grieve. And so I like that she simplifies it into energy that is just fueled. I, first of all, I thank you for bringing her into this conversation. We haven't talked about her before and I really like her work. 
I haven't read the book, but I do follow her on social media and she has a website that's really great too. So thank you. I want to say my lens is a little different regarding anger. I'm a huge believer in feeling all of your feelings and that, that there is no wrong feeling. Like feelings are just feelings and we, we must allow ourselves to feel them in order to move through forward, you know, navigate our lives. So I often will say to my kids when they feel something like allow yourself to do that, because if you don't, it will come out in another way. You know, it will come out in another way and destructive behavior, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So it's interesting to hear you guys. I feel like you're, you're saying that you have a little judgment around feeling anger when you feel it yourselves. No, like it's uncomfortable. Well, yeah. yeah. And yes. And I think that, I think that that speaks to Megan Devine's point in the quote in her book of how it's perceived in a societal manner and in the medical model, medically, it is perceived as pathologized much of the time and something, something to be corrected or changed. And I just think that that speaks to me because I remember for so long, that's exactly what that was. Or People don't understand. And again, I'm going to bring up when children or adolescents are grieving, they don't see that anger or displacement or aggression as grieving. Especially when it's not directed at something that is about your parent or the loss. Like, usually I feel like anger comes out in different ways, like Christine's talking about. So, like, as a child, you're not angry because you don't have a mom. You're not saying, I'm I'm mad because I don't have a mom, blah, blah, No, you're showing that anger towards something else. Maybe that you didn't get that snack or you don't want to go to bed or, mm-hmm. you know, but there's, there's the underlying anger. Mm-hmm. That's just really hard to communicate about. I mean, I find myself now getting angry about everything and anything. And it's because of, I think what you're saying, Shadia, where I didn't express like what I was really angry about. And so now in therapy, my work is figuring out what I, what am I really angry about? Cause it's rarely, I mean, I get irritated a lot, but that's just the surface and under that. And the reason it scares me, it feels like there is a huge rage Thank you guys for bringing up displacement because that's a huge point of this. And displacement, the definition being when a person has unpleasant thoughts or emotions towards someone, but instead of taking them out on the original source, they take them out on another person or object. And it happens when a person is unable to express their emotions towards the source. So either you're being told to not express that emotion towards your dead loved one, towards God, whoever, you know, all, all of these things of, you know, whoever we're angry at after this person died, either we're told like we shouldn't be angry or we shouldn't feel it, or that person is no longer there to feel angry towards because they're gone or there's no one to put that towards. So it leaks out into these other areas of our lives and other areas affecting our loved ones as well. I think there's guilt and shame around feeling angry too, towards your dead mom. I mean, for me, it's like, I'm not, you know, I, I can't, how could I put that on her? There's just, there has to just be love and idealizing her almost, you know, there, there can't be that negative. I, especially when you're younger, how do you even hold that negativity towards this person that is so precious to you? That's now gone. 
I also want to add when I, when you're giving that definition that Megan Devine shared, which I, I really love. And can you repeat the part that Sarah brought up? Because that really struck me too, with the love and connection. Yes. Um, shown respect and given room. Anger tells a story of love and connection and longing for what is lost. So I want to add that like, I'm, I was thinking about it in regards to my mom. And then I've shared with all of you previously, like so much of my anger feels directed towards my dad. So some of that, yes, is displaced, right? And some of it is actually really towards my dad because of the love and connection that I lost with him as a result of my mom's death. So that secondary loss that showed up, does that make sense? Or does that resonate for any of you? I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. -hmm. Yeah. To take out anger on like the surviving parent. And in my case, I was raised by another family. And so in my teenage years, like when rebellious behavior is already developmentally kind of to be expected, I was just a fireball. Like, because there's that rage. I mean, I call it rage because it feels so big mm-hmm. combined with, yeah, like an adolescent teenage brain. Scary. Me too, Sarah. That was my experience as well. Being raised by another family as well. I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. And then having to feel like it's not okay to let out all of that rage because mm-hmm. at that point in my life, like I am aware that, you know, they don't have to be raising me you know, I could be bad enough that they would, you know, they couldn't raise me anymore or like I would have to go somewhere else. And so the idea that I couldn't fully unleash either prevented me from being able to even like express it, but I was expressing it in like you're saying, Aaron, like really in other ways that seemed like I was acting out or just trying to be like bad. A couple things that I did want to bring up specifically around at least our experiences, losing our mothers, Sarah, you as a child, and then the rest of us as teenagers, like about um, displays of anger in the grieving process in that. And I obtained this information through a couple of scholarly articles. Um, I can put these in the show notes as well. One of the sources comes from um, a book. It's actually from the 1980s. It's called Bereavement During Childhood and Adolescence. And then there was an article in general psychiatry in 2011 called the course of grief in children bereaved by sudden parental loss. And it talks about a lot of, of these things. And some of the notes that I took away from these number one, just really says displays of aggression may be observed in place of sadness. And they talk specifically about children versus adolescents and how young children, they're only able to endure strong emotions for very brief periods of time. And those emotions are oftentimes expressed as outbursts or misbehavior, and they're not recognized as grief-related. Children are more likely to manifest grief-related affects and behaviors versus adults on an intermittent basis. And this can happen for many years after loss. And um, adolescents, though they are very self-aware and they're able to recognize these things, their lack of critical thinking and emotional stability in their brains don't offer them enough like problem-solving skills and interpretive skills that adults have. So they're self-aware and they're able to identify, but they're, they don't know how to cope with the grief reactions, i.e. the anger that can often come through when we see it show up in children and teenagers. And so regardless of the age, 
children and adolescents, they need permission from adults to grieve. And it's been shown in a lot of studies that grieving children and adolescents do better and feel more supported when they are literally given permission from the adults in their lives to grieve. And I think that that word permission really struck me when I was doing research for this topic. Permission from the adults that you trust in your life. I really don't feel like I was given permission to be angry. First, because my general personality is very happy-go-lucky. This has nothing to do with my mom dying. This is just me at my core is that I am I am a happy, joyful, smiley person. Like literally when I was little, my nickname was Smiley or whatever, which is great. That's all good things to, to, to be. And I generally still am very joyful. But when you go through a loss like that and you are the happy go you're known as the happy go lucky kid that is what people expect of you and you expect of yourself then and so if you go out of sorts and are having other feelings outside of the bubble that you've created that that you are and they've created for yourself and people see you as it's extremely hard to share those emotions because you want to feel accepted again and if you go outside of being angry like me I did not want to be known as the angry girl because I was terrified of people leaving me or being upset like I've talked about I had all those nannies and I didn't want them to like come into our home and be disappointed or mad because I was angry which going back to Sarah, teenagers are just can be angry. They have a lot of things going on, a lot of hormones, a lot of feelings, you know. But I specifically for myself, I was like, I don't want them to leave me because I'm the angry kid. Like I want them. I know what people want to be around and that's not what they want to be around, which is not healthy. And but it also is just like kind of, I guess, survival for me. I can relate to that a hundred percent. Just the like being that smiley, seemingly happy kid. I don't know though if I was like born happy. Like I'm curious because you seem so sure. You're like, I'm just, you know, at my core, this like happy person. And I I don't know because I have a deep sadness and like I feel like I can be, you know, I can be super low and I can be super high. Like it's just the range is incredible. But I have really struggled with having to change my I kind of evolve into who I really am. And it's been terrifying to reveal my anger to certain family members and it has not gone well, but eventually like what I'm processing with my therapist is like the fact that the relationship feels more authentic. It's hard to say it's like worth it in a way, but it just feels more in alignment with who I am than having to put this mask on and pretend I'm feeling some way I'm not and just trusting myself more. You know, like if I, if a situation feels off and I kind of get that feeling in my gut and I feel anger coming up to honor that and to stand up for myself and speak up um, or remove myself from situations that feel just damaging or like they're too much, even if I realize I overreact sometimes still, but it's, it's appropriate given what's happened. I definitely do not feel that I was given permission to feel really anything. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, after <laughs> my mom sort died, of you know, yeah, it's like <laughs> anything that wasn't just, you know, steady, stable, which is so, so sad and destructive to not be given space to grieve and feel angry. I remember one incident that is coming up for me right now where I was in family therapy with my dad. It was just me and my dad. And we were actually with the psychiatrist. So not my normal psychologist. So the person that prescribes medication. But anyway, I said in the session that I wished it was my dad who died. Uh, And I actually really felt that way. I mean, I probably continued to feel that way until he died (laughs) because, uh, you know, it would, it, that would have been a very different experience if it were him and my mom was still with me and I would have preferred if it were him. And I was so angry. And I remember even the therapist was so shocked by what I said in front of my dad and in front of him. I was very quickly shut down, very quickly shut down. Like that is not okay. That's not kind that, and no one just said, Christine, you know, yes, it makes sense. You are hurting, you are grieving, you are missing your mom. You are, no, no, I was completely shut down and shamed and shamed for saying that out loud. By the therapist? Yes. As well? Yes. And then my dad became a victim. My dad was like, see, see how she speaks to me. See how she, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, as a therapist, I will say like the goal is so that every single person in the room feels seen and heard and held. And that can be extremely hard to do. And when you're describing this situation, I, you should never have been invalidated, no matter how harsh, you know, whatever is coming out, that's your reality. And I think that also speaks to the fact that I mean, that's the place that that kind of thing should come out is in the therapy room, because that's where you can really talk about it. And your dad can have space to process it. And, you know, he can have his emotions tended to, too. I just feel so bad that that happened to you, Christine. I'm sorry. Thank you. That makes me so sad and reminds me of how Megan says, literally, the medical model doesn't even support it. And it's very sad. It's very sad that there are so many children and adolescents being denied their reality, to be quite frank. That's how I see it. And it's very sad. It makes me sad for you. And I can definitely relate to a lot of what all of you are saying in being denied and not given permission and modeling grief, you know, just being um, not healthy. So I want to make a specific point about probably like how we decipher like general adolescence, emotional, like anger or irritability, whatever hormonal stuff versus grief that's showing up as anger. And the reality of the situation is that this is a very new area of research, specifically in adolescence. There's been research for decades on children and how they grieve and how that shows up like later on, but really not a whole lot on like specifically adolescence, like losing a parent then during that time in your life. And even though there's been research conducted in childhood grief and how it shows up, there's still not a whole lot. The majority of grief research has been focused on adults. And I was really frustrated (laughs) in doing that research because all of our losses happen 
when we were children and adolescents. And um, I think that it's hard to decipher that. And I think a lot of psychologists and a lot of researchers recognize that. And I found that in my research. It's hard to decipher, but that's why communication is so important and why healthy modeling of coping skills is so important. And we've kind of talked about this before in some of our episodes of how things were modeled for us, healthy boundaries, healthy coping skills, lacking for us. And that is shown to be really important and kind of the only way, one of the only ways for adolescents to like continue to show up um, as like healthy, emotionally healthy human beings after a traumatic loss. I had found one article that only talked about adolescent grief and adolescent loss. And it was written in the late 2000s. And at the end of this article, they made a point to say, this research is highly lacking and it would do well for more people to research this, to continue this research, which is sad that that was the late 2000s and there's still not a whole lot out there. We need Brene Brown to get on this. <laughs> Where right? Let's go. Where, where's well, my... I, <laughs> I love research and this is like mm-hmm. making me inspired thinking if we were to design a study, our own research study, what would we want to figure out? Like what questions would we ask and posing this to our listeners as well? Like what, what do we want to know? I would want to know, like, I guess kind of like what we were just talking about, like how do you decipher grief, anger as a form of grief versus regular adolescent anger and feelings? I mean, as a parent and a caregiver and people, it's like, are you just having these feelings because you're you're a teenager and this is, you know, quote unquote normal? Or is this to do with your parent dying? I, I don't know. I guess, like, how do you, I think that would be really helpful for anybody who is a caregiver of, of, of a motherless, fatherless child. I mean, I think it's hard enough, right? So first and foremost, Shadia, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that the first step is for people to remember the five stages of grief. The medical model shows that anger is one of the five stages of grief. I think a lot of people forget that, or they expect anger to look a certain way or to only show up in private. And when it's public, it's it's still pathologized because of how it shows up in the medical model. But even so, so much of the research on this one stage of the grief process has been done on adults and not so much on children or adolescents. So first and foremost, I think remembering that it's literally a part of the medical model of the psychology of grief, remembering that, oh yeah, that's a like, so remembering this is a part of grief and maybe just even starting there, not just assuming that this is typical adolescent behavior, or this is something, this is just a deviant behavior to be punished or to be corrected or to be pathologized. If you're caregiving, or if you know, like a child who has lost their parent, I think that that should be the foremost. Like if there's, if there's an outburst of emotion, you should assume. Or, yeah. Start well, there. Because I, I want to jump. I just want to jump in for a sec. Cause I think one of the issues is we're getting up. I don't think we should ever assume anything. I think curiosity needs to be at the forefront of all of this, because I don't think there is a normal teenage anger. Like I said that earlier, but it was, you know, that's more of just like a, you know, I don't know technically what that means, I guess is what I'm saying. Like 
in a way saying normal teenage anger, I think minimizes what is actually going on. Because in our cases, we had, we shared this, you know, very traumatic experience, the death of our moms at an early age. But then we all had a ton of other things happen to us in our lives to be angry about. Just like any teenager, whether they experience the death of a parent or, you know, the loss of a pet or they have to move or, you know, things that their parents may not even or their caregivers may have no idea that they're grieving the loss of this thing, this time, this person. Thank you for saying that, Sarah, because I was thinking that too. I feel like all teenagers are grieving something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're all the loss of their their innocence and their childhood and their I mean it is it's a it's a traumatic time regardless of mm-hmm. whether or their not bodies. there's yeah mm-hmm. yeah Reg- but regardless of whether or not there's a loss of a significant person in their lives. Thank you for correcting our language around the word assume. I think that was the wrong word. I think that your word, Sarah, curiosity was better. Thank you for stepping in with that. I agree with that because after saying it, I was like, "Mm, I don't want to make an ass out of you and me. So, um, Well, I think that's us protect. Like I have that same, that's my instinctual reactions. Well, yeah, if they've lost a parent, assume they need extra help and just be nice to them all the time. That's like how I want people to treat me. But that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying sure. to just be nice to us. I'm saying I think there's different ways that you would react to a child who has lost a parent versus a child who has anxiety and therefore it's coming out as anger. Like, I, I mean, I'm I'm just saying I think there's like different ways that you would react to to a child. I don't know. I think it. I think that it's also tricky with curiosity too, though, because. That oftentimes teenagers, adolescents do not have the language or understanding to articulate why or how these feelings are coming out. You know, I mean, I'm dealing with this personally, and there's often a response with my 15 year old, I don't know. So I come to her with curiosity, and she is incapable of knowing or expressing why she's feeling the way she's feeling. So it's so tricky. I agree with you that that is ideal to meet everyone with curiosity, but specifically that age, I think it's super hard for them to speak back to us the why and the how of what they're feeling. I just, I know for me as a, I'm not a parent yet, but like I am going to have to work on being careful not to project my emotions onto my kids a lot. Cause I do that with my dog. I do that with uh, Tony. I do that with pretty much, I do that with strangers. Um, I do but, that too. Yeah. Just, and, and I think that's where I, I come in with the curiosity because I think, yes, there's, you don't want to come in like totally like, what are you feeling like, you know, with absolutely no sort of like structure or guidance, but leaving the space for that exploration together. So it's not like, like I grew up being told, like, you seem really angry or Mm. or, like you seem, you know, like, because Sue, who raised me, she's trained in child development. She works with preschoolers and like in early childhood. And so she has like great, skills for like labeling, teaching kids to label emotions. But I have an issue with that a lot because I'm like, no, maybe like, maybe I'm feeling that way, I, but I need time to figure it out. Like, I don't want someone telling me how I'm feeling, I guess. I think you're right. And so when I was speaking of, you know, remembering that anger is actually a part of the grief process. And I guess when I had used the word assume, 
I'm speaking like I'm remembering to my adolescent years and feeling that everyone assumed that it was just normal adolescent behavior and it wasn't attached because they weren't seeing, they weren't recognizing. Like my caregivers, other family members like weren't recognizing or it felt to me that they weren't recognizing that this anger, this emotional instability, this energy that I'm projecting is connected to my grief. And it was assumed that it was just adolescent behavior. And so I'm coming from that side where it was assumed it was just adolescent. So wanting, like wanting to, I guess, like put out there that caregivers, I think, or anyone, loved ones of anyone who is grieving at all should be curious and not just assume that it's typical children or adolescent behavior, that there might be something else going on and treating it as such, being curious and being open to that. But it's also hard because there's such a lack of resources out there when it comes to this. So yeah, I guess I'm also speaking of that point of view. Let's talk about how that shows up for us now versus when we were adolescents or children. So how anger shows up for us now. And I mean, I guess, you know, we probably should stick to, I don't know, like how that shows up for us in our losses, you know, because we're all adults now living our lives without our moms, having experienced this traumatic event of losing them at a young age. How does that show up for us? You know, I mean, I definitely get angry still at it sometimes. I mean, I'm, I get angry that my mom died still like the fuck did that happen? You know, that's, it, it pisses me off still, you know, I think about it still. Um, or even just things of like, it makes me angry that she's not going to be there for things in my life. Like when I get married or when I have kids or, you know, she's just not here. Things like that, that show up in everyday life, but also does it show up deeper for us in our intimate relationships, in our connections with other loved ones, in our friendships? Does anger play a role in our lives now after loss? And if so, what does that look like? As you were listing all of those, Erin, I realized like I don't attach my anger to any of the deeper, like directly to my mom's loss almost ever. Like when I feel anger, I I don't think I've ever like, there's been a few times I think recently where I can actually recall being like, oh, like I wish like, like it's not fair that my mom's not here or that she died. But I think that also speaks to how much more work I have to do in like, processing my anger because how it shows up now is pretty much mostly in my intimate relationship. And this is a much healthier partnership. And so my my partner is able to respond in a way that it doesn't escalate. Whereas in my previous relationship, we both struggled a lot with these things. And so we it would just snowball and it would get really out of control. But now it's like, I will lash out. I, I'm super irritable. I feel like a child to be perfectly honest. I feel like a tantruming child at times. I I feel like a teenager at times. And it's like, I can even tell that in the moment, I'm like, this is not adult me. I'm aware that like some other part of me is taking over. And I'm trying to learn to just kind of give that part of me the space it needs without being too destructive to the people. And in this case, Tony, I guess. And so I just communicate with him a lot, like during, after these things happen so that 
he knows that this is something I'm working on and that I'm not proud of in myself. And I try to check in with him to see how it's impacting him. And I just, I'm aware that I can be like, my anger causes me to be emotionally abusive at times. And it's, it's an awful thing to recognize in myself because I, you know, like you were saying earlier, Shadi, I was like, people look to me like the smiley, happy, like you're such a good person. And so that didn't mesh with like, I couldn't be that person and also really angry and sometimes mean. And I'm learning how like, you know, we're all very complex people and we can be all of these things, but I don't, I don't want my anger to be as present as it has been. And so I'm trying to find other outlets like Social activism is actually like a really big outlet for some of my anger because it's a appropriate place to be angry in our society. For me, how it shows up now, I, I'm not specifically angry about my mom or my dad at this point, but I definitely in my relationship with my ex-husband and feeling this show up a lot. It, it, it's anger and resentment and resentment is huge. And I do think it is somewhat related though, to being parented or a desire to be mothered or fathered to some extent in that relationship, which never happened. And I want to say, I don't use those words, but I say his lack of showing up for me in the way that I needed causes a lot of anger and resentment for me showing up for me, meaning, you know, some of that is being mothered and fathered or parented in that intimate relationship. Um, and you know, that's tricky because no one person can do all of those things for you. Right. And at the same time, you know, well, we talk a lot about expectations in relationships, right? To not have expectations of people. And I also think it is appropriate in certain relationships that you do have expectation. One of those relationships being with your partner. And I think I did have expectations uh, that weren't met, right? And that includes being cared for in, in some of those ways that I might have gotten from my parents if they were alive. So within you know, my current day life, I mean, I definitely have anger (laughs) and I find that lack of communication creates more anger for me. Like I, I create stories in my head. I have fights in my head and it's not about, typically it's not even like toward my mom, but it's because my mom died. These things have happened inevitably. And that's not fair to anybody, but people also have choices that they make, how they're going to react to situations. And I don't feel like people maybe reacted in the way that was the best for me and maybe still are. Um, And these people are still a part of my life. So it's, it's kind of tricky. But again, I've talked about my dad doing the best that he can, but there's still situations that come up where... You know, I don't feel supported or like I'm being heard or, you know, that sort of thing. And it's tricky. And then I just internalize it because I don't want to hurt him or any of those other people. But it's not healthy for me. (laughs) I know that. And it's not just about my dad, like, you know, friendships too. Like, 
And I find that if I just even tell anybody about it, I just feel so much better if I can actually use words to it, you know, like connect words to share it, then whether it's a therapist, a friend, husband, or whatever it may be. But creating stories in my head is my biggest enemy in my life. And that's, it's not good. I'm working through that. (laughs) Well, I also you know, want to point out, like, I don't think, like you were saying, you didn't have, you know, the permission or the space or it wasn't well received, like these feelings that you were expressing. So of course you're going to keep them in your head to an extent. I feel like this is a good opportunity for us though, to also acknowledge, you know, like we are struggling with figuring out how to share, like how we feel sometimes. Like I'll, I'll speak for myself in this case. So like, my dad is still alive and he's still in my life and my feelings about him are very complicated and there is anger there, but I don't feel like I could ever share that with him. And so it's really scary to think about sharing that to everyone else, you know, like through this show, it feels unfair to him, but it also, he's not listening I know he's not listening because he's not really able to. It feels really complicated. I know we've talked about this, you know, all together because we do care how this is received. And yet this mimics the dynamic that we had as children for so long where we kind of had to filter or censor how we shared our feelings because of how it was received. But now we're adults and we can, you know, think it through a little more, but it's, I think it is hard to be brutally honest, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Sarah. Took the words out of my mouth. It is, it is hard. And I feel like kind of like a coward, maybe a little bit, but when I have shared things, I don't feel like they've been received in the way that I need them to be. So then I kind of shut down anyways, because I just don't have the energy, you know, Mm -hmm. to like put myself out there. So then I become angry. (laughs) wish you guys could have seen my face. I have one. <laughs> <laughs> Looks very angry. <laughs> yeah, I think it is really important. And I think maybe especially during this episode, talking about this emotion and how it, it continues to show up for us, that the families and the parents and everybody who we reference and talk about they're in our lives. A lot of them are still in our lives and they're alive still. And we're working it out in real time sometimes with them still. And it's complicated and it's hard. And sometimes people haven't received it very well. I know for me as well, um, sometimes it takes them a little bit and then they receive it okay, but it's really hard. And I think that's also another way that anger still shows up for me is so my my anger and how it shows up for me in my adult life is like being angry with how I was received and how my journey was received and my grief was received as an adolescent and having anger and sadness towards family members and my dad and friends and intimate partners that I had um, during that time who did not receive it and did not acknowledge and pathologized it and put me down and all of these things. And it's, it's hard, it's hard to deal with. And it's hard to still have these people in my life and, 
there's all sorts of complicated feelings. There's, there's love and connection, but there's also anger and grief of sometimes losing those relationships, all these like secondary losses that can come from that. And then the anger that stems from those, it's, it's so intertwined and it's very complicated. And I think especially because it's still happening in real time and that's important to acknowledge, but that's oftentimes how my anger shows up for me. And I agree with both you, Sarah, and you, Shadia. I'm not comfortable sharing on here the extent of that anger or of certain emotions that still show up for me and that I'm still working through because I don't want to hurt anybody. And it is still complicated. And I'm still working out how to process that myself and how to continue having a relationship with these people while harboring that anger and that sadness and that grief still. It's very complicated. And like you said, Aaron, like you don't want to hurt anyone. It's I know consciously I don't want to hurt anyone. And yet subconsciously and unconsciously, I've learned that I feel very lonely if I am the only one who's angry and hurting. And that is sometimes what I've discovered will drive like I this isn't, you know, ideal. This is something, like I said, I'm working on, but like, I will find connection through my anger. I will lash out because to me, that feels like a real authentic connection in the moment. And so recognizing that that happens. And then also, you know, for, you know, I don't know if family and friends, you know, are listening who have been hurt by this, but the idea is that like the intention is never to hurt and being aware that I, part of me is hurting and I don't, want, like, again, it it feels so confusing because it's like, if I say I want to hurt you, then I'm a bad person. But there's something in me that doesn't want to be hurting alone. And that wants you all to like, feel this with me. And I'm trying to teach my brain that like, I don't have to inflict harm to do that. But I'm also trying to understand, you know, because some people when they hear things, it's going to hurt them. And it's not necessarily because of what I'm saying, like, that's, that's a, a soft spot for them. That's a, that's a trigger for them. And so learning to separate my feelings from other people's reactions while still taking accountability is a lot. And so being able to assess like, is this, did I just constantly reflecting on, I mean, I shouldn't say constantly, but trying to regularly reflect on my actions and behaviors and the emotions that drive them. This also brings up for me this, I think I used to do this a lot in order to know that I was cared about. It was, I needed to trigger big feelings in myself and then uh, the other person so that they would react to me so that they would show me, oh, they do care about me. They do want to show up for me and, and peace. That's not that's unsettling. That's uncomfortable. Right. It's like apathy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what it's bringing to mind for me, Sarah, what you're talking about. And it not so much now, but I think early on in my marriage, I for sure was engaging in that. So it was almost like, I I need to make sure you're still with me here. Yeah. Let's get, let's have real big feelings right now together. Put on the gloves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. One thing that you said, Sarah, really struck me. And it was when you said, um, you like separating your feelings from other people's reactions. And 
and well, basically having boundaries around that. And I think that that's something that I'm, I'm experiencing in real time. And a lot of it is tied to anger and this anger that I, I still feel, and I'm working on with my therapist and, but brings me, it automatic, it made me think of, you know, this thing that I've learned and something that I'm currently doing in my journey is my healing, my healing is not tied to anyone else's. And I don't need permission from other people to heal. And I don't need closure, really. Like, I don't need the closure to heal. And I've experienced that a lot with my relationship with my dad. And currently, like, remembering that, like, my healing is not tied to other people's healing process. Currently, with other family members as well. Yeah, that's a foreign concept to me. I'm like, what? It's wild and it's really hard. It's really hard. That's something that I'm working on in real time. Um, and it's hard. And so many of those things are tied to anger, still anger felt at family members, anger felt at my dad, anger felt at the death of my mom. And it's wild because I had a lot of displacement because I had nothing to be angry at, at the death of my mom. It was so sudden. I couldn't blame it on cancer or a car accident or something like that. It just happened. So it was like all of this displacement. And the displacement is something that I'm still experiencing and working through on my healing journey when it comes to anger. That really resonates, Erin. My dad has been gone, you know, over 10 years, but I know, and specifically in my relationship with him, the year before he died, unbeknownst to me, he was going to die within that year. But, you know, I set this boundary with him and, and really I... I say that I grew up in that year, but so much of my relationship prior to that time was, was really depending on him healing in order for me to heal. So what you just said really just, just clicked for me and being able to let go of that and healing, knowing that likely he wasn't going to heal and that I had control over my own process was it was life changing. You know, I literally grew up that year. I was 35 years old. <laughs> I was 35 years old. Yeah. And I say, I grew up. That's why I finally grew up. So I think it's about time to start wrapping up here. <laughs> so we've kind of covered a lot. I'm really happy with all that we've covered. We started with that quote from Megan Devine, which took us on a whole journey. Um, talked about grief and adolescence and childhood. Um, and anger and displacement. I wanted to end with a snippet of this article. So there's a writer. Her name is Nika M. Okono, and uh, she's an Atlanta-based writer. Um, and she experienced loss and did a couple like thought pieces on Megan Devine's work and how it helped her in grieving the loss of one of her best friends. And something that she wrote in this article, um, there were a few things, but just like really kind of struck me. And I thought that um, it would be nice to share as we close out this anger episode. So she speaks about reading the, that, that quote I shared at the top of, of the episode. She speaks about after she read that and Megan Devine's quote, she says, I remember crying when I read those words. I felt seen in a way that I had yet to feel aside from my scrolling on bereavement message boards and grief websites. But I also felt this levity that I could accept my anger as a byproduct of loss. 
I had every right to be angry about losing Precious and all the things I had lost as a result of her death. What human wouldn't be mad about having to scramble to feel some sort of normalcy when their sense of groundedness is taken from underneath them so tragically? My anger was okay. It was not some black sheep of the heart making me a shameful person. I just wanted to end on that because that one really spoke to me and made me feel seen when she wrote that. And I think it's important to know that our anger in whatever way it shows up in whatever loss we've experienced, um, it does not make us shameful people. Thank you for listening this week, everyone. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We release new content every other Tuesday. Our next episode topic will cover unpacking gratitude and will be released on November 9th. You can listen wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also find us at piecesofyoupodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Pieces of You Podcast. If you love our pod, please rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Take care of yourselves. And remember, if we work together, we can make the broken better. When you feel like you need glue to put back pieces of you, then we will work together to make the broken better. When the wounds are fresh and new and you don't think that they'll heal soon, you gotta stay open. If you share your story, it will get better. Feel like ever and you'll get stronger It's a journey we'll get through together So let us lift you up Let us keep you grounded Do you feel our love? We'll make sure that you feel surrounded Though the tears stream down Wipe them off and look Here for you.